and great to reflect and to be together to consider the, the work, life, and ministry of our Lord, of our Savior, Jesus. So today I'll, I'll be sharing from, from the passage that we just read, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 13 and 22. Um, I wanted to take this, this passage because it's, it's, it's a passage that is highly apologetically uh, apologetical about the resurrection, about the reasons for the resurrection, and, and, and about the reasons for our hope in the resurrection. So you know, you know the, the, the story, you know the narrative and the Gospels, and if you don't know it, you should read it. <laughs> it's very, very interesting. It has a lot of layers. Um, there, there's, it's very detailed. It's, it's very, very um, encouraging to read, but I wanted to take this passage because it, it helps to... to um, provide a foundation for our beliefs. And so that's what we're going to be doing today. So I want to pray before we start, and, and then we'll get to it. Heavenly Father, we, we come to you this morning. We, we pray that you will lead us and your spirit to behold the truth, and to behold the truth that it is Jesus himself, our Savior, our King, our long-expected Messiah, we pray that you will help us to grasp the magnificency of the gospel, the power of the message that you have given us through your Son. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. An empty tomb, a full statement is what I have named this um, sermon today. Um, we, we live in a time where the world or, or society thinks that it holds some kind of authority over everything. And the way that this is manifested is in the exercise of, of them rewriting, redoing, redefining. So this era that has been deemed a postmodern era, we call it what it truly is. It is a post-truth era. Where things and the way that they have been established can be rewired, reshaped to suit whatever philosophy, school of thought, or ideology that comes around and that can be established as the new truth or as one of many truths. Things do not hold any value anymore because truth is something that you can mold to whatever shape you want. So a man can be a woman or vice versa, a children incapable of, of drinking or driving or even exercising a right to vote, can now decide if he wants his body mutilated and his genitals removed or their breasts cut off. A human baby in the womb is nothing more than a clump of cells that can be torn apart at any convenient time. And if you find existence unbearable and full of sorrow and suffering, they can assist you with a pain-free, sanitized suicide. People are encouraged day in and day out to live their truth. And you are nothing more than a bigot if you disagree with their definition of the truth. The masses are willing to go to the streets and march together for the sake of fighting for their truth, whatever that is. So by stating that there are multiple truths, they are stating that nothing really is true. So giving themselves the ultimate goal, 
that is the seal of approval for them to do whatever they want. So truth matters. And the church have been entrusted with a ministry, and this is the ministry of truth. First Timothy chapter 3, verse 15. The household of God, of the living God. The pillar, which is the pillar and support of the truth. So it is important for us to know the truth, to hold the truth, and to proclaim the truth. So when Jesus said of himself, I am the truth, he's not only stating that he is the truth in the sense of just believing what he says, but that in the cosmic sense that he is in fact the truth, sustaining all things, that he is himself who has established everything and that by that he gets to define. Because he has been the one establishing all things. He is the one able to define things and what they are and what they are for. The testimony of the truth, this is that Jesus says who, said, who he said he is, that in fact he has accomplished what he came to do, and that it is in fact that he was resurrected from the dead, is the cornerstone of our faith, and that is what we proclaim. In truth, Every time we gather together as a church, as the church, to glorify, to worship our Lord and Savior, we declare together that He is not in that tomb, that He didn't stay there but walked away in power and authority, alive. So the resurrection of Jesus, for us, is the ultimate seal of approval of our faith. And we would do good in knowing the implications, the meaning an application for us today. Truth matters because we live through it. The truth sustains us and encourages us. So we ought to know it deeply, personally, and practically. So in a world that takes truth to shape it, to shape it, to suit them, we actually say that truth has taken us to shape us into his image. In a world where the truth has no value, we keep the truth of Christ as our most precious treasure. So furthermore, the resurrection itself was an event that the world in the times of Jesus tried to hide. Or more likely, it tried to modify it enough to make it into something not entirely true. So Matthew chapter 28, verses 11 to 15. Now while they were on their way, behold, some of the God came into the city and reported to the chief priests all that had happened. The soldiers that they were stable posted there to, to guard the, the tomb where Jesus was laid. And when they had assembled with the elders, with the, with the religious leaders of the time, and to counsel together, they discussed this, they gave a large sum of money to the soldiers and said, you are to say his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this is heard before the governor, we will win him over and keep you out of trouble. And they took the money and did as they had been instructed. And his story was widely spread among the Jews. And it is so to this day. We see that there are efforts made. They got together, they took counsel, they discussed this 
this idea, this, this plan. Just say that you fell asleep and that his disciples came to steal his body. How did they know that it was his disciples that came to steal his body? They were asleep, <laughs> supposedly. When you try to change truth, you get nonsense. So when we see that there is an undeniable aspect of all, to all of this, the tomb is empty. Jesus is not there. But that does not mean that he was risen, is what they say. This is the approach to the truth that they have. A little bit deformed, a little bit changed, so still has the elements, but none of the substance. In this passage of 1 Corinthians, what we see is the Apostle Paul presenting an eloquent and efficient defense of the resurrection of Jesus. It is in fact that this verse is one of the most compelling arguments also of the resurrection of Christ, but also the resurrection of believers, the whole, the whole chapter 15. So my purpose today in preaching from this passage is to offer you the three arguments. There, there are more, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to summarize it in three points that I hope can be an encouragement to your faith and, and a motivation to live your Christian life with an assurance of the truth that is in Jesus Christ. So... I'm dividing my sermon today into three major points, each one of them having points of their own, subplots, but related to the major one. So the first point will be that the resurrection of Christ certifies Jesus' ministry. The resurrection also certifies our faith in Jesus. And the third point will be that the resurrection guarantees our own resurrection. So the resurrection certifies Jesus' life, ministry, and sacrifice. And this is vital, this is, this is pivotal, important for us to understand that the life of Jesus serves as a testimony of the nature of the task he was said to accomplish. Without the life of Jesus, without these 33 years of those, just the, 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 the three being his public ministry, we will lack a very important aspect of what Jesus came to do. So the first subplot for, of this point is what without is that without the imputed righteousness of Christ on us, we have an incomplete salvation. If the righteousness of Christ is not given for us, unto us, we have an incomplete salvation. So Christ's righteousness flows from his very essence. He is himself righteous. And that righteousness that he possesses is the one that he gives through his sacrifice in the cross. His righteousness is visible by all those who encounter Jesus, engage with him, or just see him. And some people will say that, well, it is impossible for Jesus being a children and not being disobedient to the parents. But that's not what the Bible says. And they try to change it just a little bit. Just a little bit. So it's not the full truth. But the fact that we have no righteousness of our own makes it impossible for us to stand before God. It's what keeps us separate, separated from the glory of God. It's the state in which we are all at in Adam's behalf. 
So before he could go to the cross, before he could fulfill the role of the Lamb of God, before he could make himself an offering to satisfy the demands of God, Jesus had to submit himself to every detail of the law of God. He had to represent the people he came to save before the standard of God. So he fulfilled every single commandment of God and proved to be sinless, spotless, perfect. So his righteousness is validated by his life, his actions, and his ministry. And in the cross, we are met with this exchange where he takes our unrighteousness and receives the penalty for it while giving his righteousness to us. So he takes our unrighteousness, receives the penalty for it, and he gives his righteousness to us. These are the new robes in which we are clothed, in which we can now approach the throne of God. This is what we call the imputed righteousness of Christ. He takes our sin and gives us his perfect obedience to bear it as our own. This is the grace of God that he gives us the righteousness of Christ so we can bear it as if it belonged to us. And we need to remember the words of Jesus Christ in the cross. It is finished. Tetelestai. It is done. So we cannot just speak about the imputed righteousness of Christ for us, but we need to also mention his atonement. For us and for the cause of the gospel, the resurrection of Jesus represents the pleasing aspect of Jesus' atonement. It is to say that Jesus had satisfied the demands of our holy God by his righteousness, by his obedience of the law and the fulfillment of it. We use the word vicarious. That means that Jesus took our place. It is to say that Jesus took a position of representation on behalf of. Jesus came to take our place in the sufferings and penalty for our sin. He pays the vicarious atonement. Or in other words, he is our substitutionary atonement. This is our assurance that Jesus lived the life that we could not live and that he took the punishment that we were bound to get. Mark chapter 10 verse 45. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. And this vicarious substitutionary atonement is also referred in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. For Christ also suffered for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, so that he might bring you to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. Jesus then voluntarily offers himself to take our place and to receive in his and his flesh the punishment for our own unrighteousness. So we have these two big ideas, the imputed righteousness of Christ and his vicarious atonement. How are these two related to Jesus' resurrection? One word, acceptance. If God is not pleased 
If God is not satisfied, it would mean that Jesus' offering of him giving himself as a sacrifice to pay and save those who would believe in him would be worthless. The indication for the acceptance of the sacrifice of Jesus is actually foreshadowed both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. You see that in the Old Testament, the priest will exit the Holy of Holiest only if God had accepted the sacrifice. That's why they had to tie the rope at the ankle of the priest. Because if God is not accepting that sacrifice, you know what happened? The priest dies, and no one can go in to retrieve the body. So they will have to literally pull him out. Can you understand the, the tension when the priest goes into behind the curtain, and the people is waiting outside, and they don't know what's going to happen, and they see the smoke? And they have to wait until the priest comes out, representing that God has accepted the sacrifice on behalf of the people. So this was the declaration that God had accepted the sacrifice. And we know that in the New Testament, when Jesus is crucified, the curtain that separated that areas in the temple was torn apart. But also we know that Jesus left the tomb, proving that God has accepted his sacrifice. So now we know that we bore true witness of this, that God, upon accepting the sacrifice of Jesus, resurrected him. Romans chapter 1, verse 4, who was designated as the Son of God and power according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Our witness is that God raised Christ from the dead and that He, by this, was accepted has accepted Christ as our substitute so we can rest assured that our testimony about the saving Messiah, about Jesus Christ himself, it is true. The resurrection certifies the life, the ministry, and the sacrifice of Jesus as acceptable before God. And this is the cue for our next point. The resurrection certifies our faith in Jesus since we know who Jesus is and what he came to accomplish, and also we know that God has validated all this is that we can have an assurance of, of our faith. First, we need to consider the importance of the resurrection because this event has been prophesied. The resurrection itself has been a prophesied event. In the gospel, according to Mark, we read Mark chapter 8, verse 31. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. But maybe that is too close to be considered like a proper prophecy for some. Let's look back then in the Old Testament. In the Psalms, there is a messianic psalm pointing, leading to Jesus. Psalm 16, verses 10 and 11 for you will not forsake my soul to Sheol. You will not give your Holy One over to see corruption. 
You will make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand there are pleasures forever. And also by the prophets, Isaiah chapter 53, verse 12, Therefore I will divide for him a portion with the many, and he will divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. Many suffered the same death as Jesus. The crucifixion was a common practice in the times of the Roman Empire. It was a practice that, that they adopted from the, from the Greeks. It was a punishment used as a form of public declaration of what happens to those who oppose the emperor and the empire. But we can say that the death of Jesus happened... Sorry, we cannot say that the death of Jesus happened in the same terms as those other many. This Jesus, the prophesied Messiah, the Lamb of God, the Son of Man, this Jesus that we believed in is not mere teacher. He's much more than a prophet, much more than a rabbi, much more than any other historical figure that you can think of. Our Jesus is before Jacob or Moses, before Abraham. And our Jesus certainly is above Muhammad or Buddha or Confucius. There is no other that can be compared to him. The counterfeit versions of Jesus, of the Mormons, of the Jehovah's Witness, of the Seventh-day Adventists, all of those Jesus pale in the presence of the magnificence of our Savior. There's no equal. Christians. Scripture-believing Christians are the only ones who claim that salvation comes based on the works of someone else, and this someone else being Jesus Christ. We are the only ones who claim that our Savior has done it all. Why can we so boldly proclaim our salvation? Because of Jesus. You know the, the, the son of the carpenter over there in Bethlehem? But he's so much more than that. So much more than that. He's the one that with a single wave of his hand calms the sea. And with a shout of his voice quieted the winds. The Jesus that fed thousands, that healed sick people, that cast away demons. And that's not only it. I have time so I can keep going, so I will. This Jesus, the Son of God, the long-expected Messiah, long, long-expected, spoke of the serpent in the garden, the prefigured to Noah in the ark, the true blessing for the nations through Abraham's seed, the anointed one ashore to Moses before he died, the eternal king promised to David, the suffering servant announced by to Isaiah, the Christ prophesied by the prophets and proclaimed by John in the desert. Our Jesus is not a mere fabrication of human wittiness and creativity. Our Jesus, the one from Scripture, 
Not this hippie therapist, open-minded, joppy revolutionary guru that the world likes to follow. No, no, no. The Jesus that we have. Our Jesus. This is who our Jesus is. Who although existing in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. But emptied himself by taking the form of a slave, by being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death and even death on a cross. Therefore, God also highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is our Jesus. This is our Jesus. We don't worship a Savior wannabe. We have the full assurance that our Jesus, who is God incarnate, who by the power of His hands made all things, and that by, the, by His power sustains all things, have come because of His eternal love to fulfill, to rescue, to save, to redeem. To whom? We, sinners. Those who have no righteousness of their own, those blinded, those lost, the despair, the empty. And God, Yahweh, being rich in mercy, abounding in steadfast love, says to us that everyone who believes in this Jesus, to whoever believes in the name of his anointed and his Christ, will be saved and will live forever in his presence. The resurrection certifies our faith in Jesus because it is the full display of the glory of the gospel. All, all, all the other pseudo-messiahs are dead. They are nothing less than a bunch of rotting bones dust in the pages of history. But the Savior and Lord to whom we shout allegiance not only is alive, but actively interceding for His people before God. And that is why we can claim with full and strong assurance, therefore there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because He is risen we can have assurance that what we believe is true. That when we say that we believe in Jesus, we're saying that we believe everything that Scripture says about Him. That we believe everything He said about Himself. And that we believe everything that He has accomplished. So we can then answer the rhetoric question of Paul here in chapter 15. 15 of 1 Corinthians. Has Christ been raised? Amen. 
Is our preaching, preaching in vain? No. Is our faith vain? No. The resurrection certifies, I'm sorry, guarantees our own resurrection. In a Newsweek article from 1968, a newspaper of sorts, there was an article titled, Soul on Ice. Sounds like a show, like a Disney show. Soul on Ice. And he read the reports of the premature death of a 24-year-old Stephen J. Mendel due to chronic illness. But before his death, however, Stephen sought to safeguard his future by having his body frozen in the hope that he could one day be thought and revived if a cure for his illness were ever found. In compliance with his wishes, upon his death, his body was taken infused with antifreeze, packed with dry eyes, and placed indefinitely in a capsule. A remote chance of success was all Mendel's mother was willing to grant the science fiction-like endeavor. Nonetheless, she continued, it was easier for me to bear because there wasn't the same finality of putting someone away under the earth. This is the reality that those who want to alter reality face. This is the, the, their despair on display. This is the hopelessness in which they dwell their bodies. This highlights the profound pessimism of those who, don't, who do not know the Lord. This is why it is so important, my beloved, that we hold fast to the truth. The truth of the gospel, the whole truth of the gospel of God. As believers, we look forward to future hope. The hope of resurrection, our very own resurrection. And our resurrection is not one of fantasy or science fiction, but the inevitable reality or a biblical fact. It requires no ice, no antifreeze, no liquid nitrogen. You can be buried drowned or cremated, only one thing is important, that you possess a saving relationship with Jesus and that as a member of his people, you can expect with great confidence the resurrection unto life. This truth about our future glory, it is in fact called glorification. And Wade Grudem defines this in this way in his systematic theology. Glorification is the final step in the application of redemption. It will take place when Christ returns and resurrects the bodies of all believers of all times who have died and reunites them with their souls and changes the bodies of all believers who are alive, thereby giving all believers at the same time perfect resurrection bodies like his own. Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 reminds us that this future reality is to be eagerly anticipated or in his own words, grown for. 
In fact, in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul described the staggering reality of experiencing eternal life in a resurrected body. The hope of a resurrection unto eternal life where says where lays the difference between Christians and non-Christian. Have you been to a non-Christian funeral? Have you looked at their faces? They don't know what to think. They don't know what to say. All they can say is like he's in a better place. Have some sort of comfort. Christians' funerals are all different. And this explains why we do not mourn like the rest of the world, which has no hope. We mourn, but we mourn in hope. And there's a huge difference. And such optimism, even in the face of death, is predicated upon the reality that Christ has risen from the grave. His, resur his resurrection guarantees the same for those who belong to him. Consequently, for believers, there are no goodbyes. Just see you later. Charles Spurgeon, speaking of those in his own congregation who had died, he said, The very happiest persons I have ever met with have been departing believers. The only people for whom I have felt any envy and have been dying members of this very church, whose hands I have grasped in their passing away, almost without exception, I have seen in them holy delight and triumph, and in the expectation to this, and in, and in the exception to this exceeding joy, I've seen deep peace exhibited in a calm and deliberate readiness to enter into the presence of their God. Gospel hope is always forward-looking. It is eschatological. It is future. This is the effect that truth has on us. It fuels our expectations and feeds our hope of what is yet to come. That's why the apostles and the martyrs of the church have been willing to die for the sake of the truth of the gospel. This is why they endure. None of the disciples, none of the leaders of the church in the first century died of natural causes. They were all murdered, stoned to death, thrown through cliffs, feed to their beasts, crucified, burned, and they all went through it with the expectation of the hope of the resurrected bodies. This is why Jesus gave his grand promise in John chapter 11, verse 25 and 26. The episode when he brings Lazarus out of, out of the tomb. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Ever. Do you believe this? And it's the same question that we ask to ourselves. Do we believe this? At the moment of Mary and Martha's deepest sorrow, Jesus offered them this greatest, his greatest promise. Life in this fallen world has only one ending. 
physical death. And in this, Christ's answer is to anchor our hope in our future glory. I am the resurrection and the life. This is a claim to the deity of God. But when we say that Jesus is God, and that Jesus said that he is God, when you get asked that question, where did Jesus say that he is God? Here you have your answer. When he says, I am the resurrection and the life, he is quoting back from Deuteronomy um, chapter 32, verse 39. See now that I, I am he, and there is no God besides me. It is I who put to death and give life. I have wounded, and it is I who heal. And there is no one who can deliver from my hand. 1 Samuel chapter 2, verses 6. Yahweh puts to death and makes alive. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. Psalm 49, 15. But God will redeem my soul from the power of Sheol, for he will receive me. Jesus claims to be the source of our future resurrection and the fountainhead of our eternal life. And this is the precious stone and the crown of the gospel. So when we proclaim the gospel, we proclaim this truth as well. With a dead Savior, a martyr added to the list of the cause, we have no future hope. But it is because of the resurrection of Christ that we can hope and expect to be resurrected as well. That is, this is why, why Paul says, Christ being the first fruit, the very best, the most precious. But then we will follow and we'll have resurrected bodies as he has. Once in Adam, dead in our trespasses, but now in Christ, made alive to a living hope that we will be made alive in new resurrected bodies. And I don't believe that when the Bible speaks about resurrection of, of believers, it refers to just a spiritual state. The Bible is clear and it presents what has been called the new creation model of the eternal state. We know that God restores us spiritually through faith in Jesus Christ, but the promises of the Old Testament look forward to a final restoration, which is not limited merely to the spiritual plane. We are promised spiritual and physical blessings. Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 1 to 10. Genesis chapter 12 and chapter 13 and 15. Jeremiah chapter 31, 33, 2 Samuel 7. And Paul goes out of his way in 1 Corinthians 15 to demonstrate that the resurrection believers look forward is to, to it is bodily, which is to say physically. A new creation model operates on the belief that life in the future kingdom of God is largely similar to God's purposes for the creation before the fall of Adam, which certainly involve more than just a spiritual element. Thus, the final heaven is not an ethereal spiritual presence in the sky. 
They're not going to be pools where we're just going to be soaking in there, playing with little harps, singing. That's, that's from Cartoon Network. That's not from the Bible. So resurrection matters because it helps us to put things in perspective. It causes us to focus more on what really matters. So now we can have this assurance because the Lord Jesus conquered sin and death through his crucifixion and resurrection. Believers can now face death without fear or trepidation. They know they are going home into the presence of their Savior and Lord. That was the anchor. And that has been the anchor of the faith of the church throughout history. That is why resurrection, the resurrection of Jesus, guarantees our own resurrection. We have reached the end of, of the call Easter week. But for us, it's, it's not the end. This truth, we live it daily, not just on this date. This declaration that we have seen in the letter of Paul to the Corinthians are precisely given to us to hold dear and as a banner of our hope and faith. We need to grasp this faith, this truth tightly. We need to proclaim it loudly because the world wants to take it. They want this truth, but not to treasure it, not to be amazed by it. They want it so they can deform it Strip it of his power. But they, they do not know that because we have been given this truth, because we are sustained by this truth, that we are moved by it, encouraged by it, they don't know that, that even the gates of hell will not prevail over God's church. So remember, church of the risen king, you are the pillar and the support of the truth. We are the banner of truth of God. Chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians ends with this astounding declaration. First Corinthians um, chapter 15, verses 54 and 55. But when this corruptible puts on the incorruptible and this mortal puts on immortality, then will come about the word that is written, dead is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Live on, Christian. Live on, the life given and the promise of the life to come. Death has lost his grip on you, and you are now found in the everlasting, all-loving, and forever-caring arms of your Savior, Jesus Christ, the suffering servant, the resurrected King, the Alpha and the Omega, the worthy Lamb who took away our sins and has redeemed us people of their own 
to be the people of God. I don't know the state of everyone in here. I don't know how you're standing today before God. I'm not sure of the hope that you have. I don't know your heart. So I'm bound to say this. If you're not in Jesus before God, you are in Adam. And if you're in Adam, you are in your sins. But if you are in Jesus, you are in life. God's offering is for sinners to believe that He has provided a way, a better, all-sufficient, and more precious way in the life, in the ministry, and in the sacrifice of His Son, Jesus Christ. That invitation is for everyone. The message of the kingdom, it is this, repent and believe that Jesus Christ paid it all with his blood, with his life, and that what he has obtained in that cross, freely he gives it to you to have it, to possess it as it is your own, so you can go before God and claim righteousness, not your own, but the one given by Jesus our Lord. I hope that you are standing before God as a son and not as accused. But I assure you that whoever believes in Jesus Christ will be saved. That if you confess that Jesus is your Savior and Lord, God will show mercy on your soul and will give you that future hope of a resurrected body, eternal, abundant, joyful, full life in His presence forever. We praise you, Jesus, the conqueror of death. We worship you, our Lord, our King, who humbled Himself to live the life that we can live. Who came in and gave his body, his own blood, for the forgiveness of our sins. Our sins, which are many. Our sins that are run deep. Our sins that are erected as an offense before the holiness of our of our perfect God. But where sin abound, grace abounded more. Where there were darkness, your light shined through. And by the sacrifice of Jesus, by the merits of his life, we stand before you, God, and call you our Father.
Believe in Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And by the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.